Good morning. Good morning. Happy Pentecost. That's today. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, you guys, would you like to join me in prayer? Father God, we come before you to hallow your name. Lord, we know that you're going to meet with your people through the teaching of your word. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you're always there to meet with us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So today, we are going to start 2 Corinthians. Yeah, it's exciting. Paul ended 1 Corinthians by telling them, watch, stand fast, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. The Corinthians did do what Paul had instructed, but not completely. Trouble was brewing again in Corinth. This time, the opponents of Paul claimed that he was not a legitimate apostle of Jesus Christ. Frequently, they pointed to the suffering that Paul endured as evidence to bolster their claim against him. 2 Corinthians features Paul's defense of his apostleship, as well as more instructions for godly living. Let's begin the book of 2 Corinthians in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Paul begins his letter in a bold and strong way. He essentially declares his credentials or his apostleship of Christ. The word Paul used is apostolos, which has dual meanings in the New Testament. The more common usage is that of a messenger. Paul was most certainly a messenger of Jesus Christ. However, in the way which Paul uses this word in this salutation, it has a much more significant meaning. One who Christ uniquely commissioned to bear authoritative witness to his person and his work. Luke says that Jesus made a distinction between his followers. In Luke 6.13, it says, And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. All Christians are called to be a disciple of Christ, but only the twelve unique individuals that Christ chose can be called or considered apostles. Apostles must be specifically called by Christ himself. In Acts chapter 1, Luke provides the account of the 11 apostles who looked to Psalm 109 to justify choosing a man who would take Judas, the son of perdition's place. Luke records they prayed this prayer, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, would, which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. Next, they cast their lots, which is the equivalent of flipping a coin as a way to make a decision. The lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven. Even with the best of intentions, what the eleven did was in the power of man. Christ did not uniquely commission Matthias. In fact, he's not mentioned again in Scripture after that. Paul, on the other hand, was uniquely called. He was commissioned by Jesus Christ personally. Paul then called Paul of Paul then called Saul of Tarsus. 
The miraculous conversion of Saul is found in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, who are you are persecuting? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembled and was astonished and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Being confronted by Christ, Saul immediately obeys. Paul's conversion stories story continues with him going to meet a disciple named Ananias in Damascus. In a vision, Ananias is told by night to go to the Lord. Excuse me. Ananias is told by the Lord to go meet Saul and lay hands on him so that he might receive his sight because Saul was blinded during his encounter with Jesus. Ananias naturally raises concern with the Lord because he had heard all the terrible things that Saul had been doing to the church. The Lord reassures Ananias and tells him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Paul was God's choice to replace Judas. Paul even states it when he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul was an apostle according to God's will. Comparing Matthias and Paul probably isn't, isn't fair because Matthias was a faithful disciple of Christ. He followed him from his baptism to his resurrection. Matthias was a witness of the risen Lord. A proper comparison should be what is done in man's wisdom and what is done in God's wisdom. When a man or a woman decides that they're going to go do this and that for the kingdom and then set out in their own strength to accomplish it, it will be met with failure. Perhaps not in the world's eyes, but definitely in God's eyes. Asking the Lord for his guidance is good and proper, but it must be accompanied by waiting on the Lord. Paul had to announce his apostleship in the greeting because it had been questioned here in Corinth. First Corinthians 16 makes mention of Timothy going to Corinth. Paul gives instructions about how Timothy is to be treated. It's clear that Timothy had returned because he's included in this epistle's greeting. Perhaps upon his return, it was Timothy that provided a report that Paul's apostleship and thereby his authoritative word was being questioned. Another possibility is that Paul learned this from Titus. In chapter 2, Paul refers to looking for Titus in Troas, but not being able to find him. Paul then departed to look for Titus in Macedonia. Eventually, Paul makes contact with Titus, which is recorded in chapter 7. In either case, Paul's greeting begins, begins with the defense or the apologetic of his apostleship. Paul refers to Timothy as our brother, and this is important. To be a brother in the Christian church is special. The church is a holy family. Romans 8:14 explains, for as many are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Christians are the sons and daughters of God in whom the spirit indwells. The same spirit of Christ takes up residence in every believer. 
The Greek word koinonia is often used to describe the brotherly relationship that makes up the body of Christ or the church. It has the idea of interconnectedness and interdependence. These, these relationships that comprise the body of Christ involve deep, close-knit participation among believers. The Apostles' Creed calls it the communion of the saints. The church in Corinth, as well as Paul, were Timothy's brothers and sisters. The Corinthians that had caused Paul so much consternation were his family. Verse 1 continues, to the, churches, to the church of God which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia. Paul declares the intended audience of this epistle, the church at Corinth and the surrounding region of Achaia, which accompanied the city of Corinth. Including Achaia shows that Paul intended for the letter to be shared amongst the Christians in the region. Paul describes the church as the church of God. One must remember that the church is the Lord's. Jesus said, I will build my church. Acts 2.47 says, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The church belongs to God. It is his job to grow and build it. Church growth will happen only as the spirit wills, and the wisdoms or strategies of man should never be used to increase the church. Paul calls the Christians in Achaia, and therefore the Corinthians saints. Saint in the New Testament does not refer to a person who has since died and had been canonized by the, the church. A saint is not a super-Christian who is more pious than you. A saint is any and every person who is, set, who is set apart or sanctified by their belief in Christ. Paul knew about the problems in Corinth and still referred to them as saints. Please know that on your worst day, and you feel like you've messed up yet again, Jesus still loves you, and you're still a saint. Amen. Grace to you, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses the greeting grace and peace, or the variation grace, mercy, and peace, in all of his epistles, with the exception of Hebrews, and there is some debate as to whether Paul even wrote Hebrews. Grace. Grace is undeserved favor or merit. Romans 5.15 says, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift, the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Grace is the sinner's free gift. A sinner dead in, a sinner dead in trespasses has done nothing to earn salvation. In fact, no one has ever done anything to earn their salvation. Living a good and moral life will not cause God to grant you entrance into heaven. It is only by the gift of grace that man is saved. As Paul, as Paul wrote, this gift is only found in Jesus Christ. Salvation is not found in Allah or Buddha. Peter, addressing the Sanhedrin, said of Christ, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among by which we must be saved. If you are not a saint today, this gift of grace is available to you. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth 
the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one's to believe, one believes unto righteousness, and with, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Paul could offer grace because he experienced it. He knew the depths of the grace of God. Paul said of himself, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. Paul's persecution included consenting to the death of Stephen, the church's first martyr. He also went door to door and had Christian men and women put into prison. It's no wonder Ananias was concerned. Paul had done terrible things to the church. And yet, in his grace, God chose Paul to be a chosen vessel. Paul, the persecutor of the church, could impart grace because he understood its depths. If God can use him, God can use any of you too. Yeah. Peace in ancient Greek is irene. This word is predominantly used to signify the absence of hostility. The Septuagint uses irene as the equivalent of the word shalom, which means peace and carries with it the idea of well-meaning, well-being and prosperity. Peace, as Paul wrote, doesn't mean I hope nothing bad happens. It means to experience the richness of peace that is only found in Jesus Christ. God also wants you to experience this peace. Look to Christ to have this peace in your life. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, said, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. The peace that Christ offers is real, and in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 provides practical steps on how we can experience it. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is a promise. Live your life by prayer praying and presenting your needs before him with an attitude of thankfulness and he will give you that peace one last thing about peace it can only be experienced after you have accepted and lived in the grace the gift of grace that christ offers let's read uh, verse two again grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ paul states that god is our father look again Looking again at Romans chapter 8, he elaborates on how God is our Father. Verses 15 through 16 say, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by who we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Each and every person that has placed their faith in Christ is a child of God and can approach him as their Abba, their father. You may have heard it said that Abba means Papa or Daddy. It does in modern times. It meant father during the time of Christ, and it carries with it a sense of familiar, familial intimacy. Approaching God as father or Christ as friend 
must also be done with a sense of who you're talking to. The Father is the Holy One of Israel, and Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Never, ever approach the the throne of God in a flippant way. Jesus is not your homeboy. He is your Savior. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul transitions to show that God, the Father, is the Father of Jesus Christ. John records Jesus' words. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Christ knew that God was his Father. Jesus as the Son doesn't mean that he's any less God than the Father. He was relationally subordinate during the Incarnation. Jesus did all things to please the Father, and this should serve as a model for all Christians. Blessed be God. It's a bit of a curious phrase. God is the source of all good things, of all blessings. How can he be blessed? Blessed be God is actually a way of praising and glorifying him. Saying it ascribes to him all honor and blessings. And it can also be said that a way of the believer lives his or her life can also be a blessing. If a person lives in such a way that they desire to do all that pleases him, it's a blessing and glorifying to God. Continuing in verse 3, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we were comforted by God. Father of mercies, isn't that the truth? The gift of grace in Christ is the ultimate act of mercy. The Son came to seek and save that which was lost. He gave his life to redeem mankind and draw sinners to him by the person of the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin and righteousness. God has shown mercy, is showing mercy, and will show mercy. The prophet Jeremiah proclaimed, Through the Lord's mercies were not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's mercy is an amazing gift for you to experience every single day. God's comforting hand works the same as his mercies. Isaiah 49, 113 says, Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on on his afflicted. God has comforted. Paul says here that God of all comfort, who comforts us, God is currently comforting. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will, shall be comforted. God will comfort. God's working are always past, present, and future. God will comfort his people in all tribulations. Not some of them, all of them. The comfort that Paul speaks about is not the kind of comfort that one finds in their favorite chair or the comfort you provide a child after a scary dream. God's comfort carries with it the idea of strengthening and helping. 
When you experience tribulations, which are any kind of trouble or affliction, it's God's desire to help you endure them well so that you can comfort others with the same comfort that God has given you. There are examples of God using other people to provide comfort. In chapter 7 of this epistle, Paul writes, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolations which he comforted you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Paul was troubled. There were tribulations all around. And God comforted Paul at the arrival of Titus. Paul's comfort was not just from Titus, but it also came from knowing that the Corinthian church had provided Titus with comfort. Titus's report of the Corinthians' church desire, mourning, and zeal led from comfort to rejoicing. Strength led to praise. Has God comforted you during the storms of life? If so, you have a special gift that you can share with others. There are those in church, those in this church, who have endured what others simply could not. The comfort of God is not sympathy. It's not simply feeling bad for a brother or sister in Christ's situation. The comfort of God Christians give to one another is a Holy Spirit-inspired empathy. Any comfort that God provides is not just for the recipient. It's also meant to be shared with others. Jesus Christ lived a life focused on others. As his followers, we are to do the same. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one of us has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Spiritual gifts, God's comfort, and blessing should all be used to serve, comfort, and encourage others. God also uses the Holy Spirit to provide comfort in tribulations. John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things I have said to you. The Helper is translated as the Comforter in the King James Version. What a glorious gift that Christ has bestowed on his church to send the Comforter to stir up his people for love and good works. God's comfort ought to be an encouragement for you to keep loving each other well. Verse 5. As for the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Paul was deeply familiar with suffering. Think back to God telling Ananias that Paul was a chosen vessel to be used by God. Ananias was also told, For I shall, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul knew he was going to suffer for Christ, and yet he persevered on anyways. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 11, 
beginning at verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in, per in perils in per in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things. What comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. J.C. Ryle says, he has never promised that we shall have no afflictions. He loves us too well to promise that. By affliction, he teaches us many precious lessons, which without it, we would never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, and makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall all say, it was good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. The list of, of afflictions that Paul endured, endured is mind-boggling. Yet, he was still deeply concerned for the churches every day. Paul learned experientially that Christ is closest in times of suffering. Acts chapter 23 shows Paul being imprisoned for his own safety. Verse 11 says, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Christ went to Paul in his sufferings. The Lord consoled him. He was more than qualified to say, Our consolation abounds in Christ. Jesus can and will meet you in your suffering. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If Jesus was willing to meet Paul in his suffering, know this, Christ doesn't change. And that means he's still willing to minister to his people. Verse 6, Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. What Paul is saying in this verse is as he suffers afflictions, it produces comfort and salvation for the Corinthians. Looking back to verse 5, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Suffering for Christ leads to overflowing comfort. In essence, Paul is conveying to the Corinthians that if Paul and Timothy are afflicted, they will be comforted. And if 
It is for the Corinthians' comfort and salvation because they would suffer as well. When Paul says afflicted or comforting, it is because comforting cannot come without suffering. Afflictions must come before consolation. One may ask, how does Paul's suffering and comfort lead to the Corinthians' salvation? It's through the proclamation of the gospel. The list of afflictions Paul presented happened during his missionary trips. Paul suffered to take the message of Jesus Christ to Corinth, as well as the other churches recorded in the book of Acts. Paul had no power to save. Salvation is found in Christ alone, but he did have the Holy Spirit-led ability to spread the message that Jesus saves sinners. Saints, you have that same ability to rely on the Holy Spirit to proclaim the good news. Some may be tempted to think that they're not evangelists, but fear not. The Spirit will provide you with the words to express the reason for the hope that is found within you. There's another aspect to the suffering that Paul endured, and the Corinthian church caused it. 1 Corinthians fully displays the church's dysfunctionality. It was painful for Paul to witness and painful for him to correct. Later in this same letter, Paul writes, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. Paul provides the context for his harsh or severe letters. Later in chapter 2, verse 4, he writes, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Paul deeply loved his family in Corinth. Verse 7, And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that you are partakers of the sufferings, so also will you partake of the consolation. Paul's hope for the Corinthian church is unwavering and immovable because he knows as the church suffers, they will be comforted. Here Paul explicitly is telling them they would suffer. Paul was told he would suffer many things for the name of Christ, and now he is sharing the suffering with the believers in Corinth. Peter in his first epistle says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Weaving Peter and Paul's words together indicate, indicates the blessings for suffering is consolation in Christ. Peter, like Paul, knew this firsthand. Acts 5.42 records, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. As the moral darkness of this present age continues to grow, the church must also be prepared to suffer with the hope of comfort. Verse 8, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired of life. The trouble that Paul references here is unknown, is mo most likely some form of persecution, Paul says, we despised even of life. It means they thought they were going to die. 
God had allowed Paul to be at the end of his rope, so to speak. God can allow that at times. He wants his people to trust in him and not their own strength. Paul spoke about this toward the end of this letter. He said, God's strength is made perfect in weakness. If a person truly looks at themselves and their life, they will understand that man is really powerless in the grand scheme of things. Which of you can cause the sun to rise in the morning or can cause it to set at night? No one. We trust in Christ who upholds all things by the word of his power. God sees you and he knows the troubles you're facing. Paul's going to address trusting God in the next two verses. Verses 9 and 10. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves so that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. The term the sentence of death in ourselves should be understood that the, the, the death sentence didn't come from a ruler or from a court. It was a feeling they felt deeply within. Paul and company were certain they were going to die. Their deaths weren't thought to be far off. They considered death imminent. Paul's death was as certain as a man walking up the gallows, but Paul trusted God. He trusted because he knew Jesus. He knew that Christ, who is dead, is now alive. The same hope is available for you too. It's an ongoing hope. The hope of the resurrection is imparted to the believer at the moment of salvation and is something to be basked in daily. It is our hope. Our hope is Christ. The deliverance of God works just like his comfort and mercy. God delivered Paul from so great a death. God delivered, past tense. God does deliver Paul, present tense. God will still deliver Paul and Timothy, future tense. God works past, present, and future, whether that be deliverance, mercy, or comfort. Verse 11. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted us through many. Paul knew the importance of intercessory prayer, which is praying for other people and their needs. It was true then, and it's true today. Paul, in 1 Timothy 2.1, gives the following exhortation. Therefore, exhort first all of that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Some of the most powerful work done for the kingdom of God is done in the prayer closet, not the pulpit. Paul says, thanks may be given by many persons on behalf of the gift granted to us through many. Adam Clark has the clearest explanation of this passage. He says, thanks may be given by many when they who have prayed hear their prayers are so particularly answered. Then all that have prayed will feel themselves led to praise God for his gracious answers. Thus, the prayers of many obtain the gift and the thanksgiving of many acknowledge the mercy. The gift bestowed by the means of many persons, the blessings communicated by means of their prayers. In his greeting to the Corinthian church, Paul speaks about suffering, comfort, and deliverance. These are all part of the, the Christian life. 
an important distinction must be made that not all suffering is the same. Planet Earth exists in a fallen, sinful state, which means everyone's going to suffer, good and bad people. Suffering is simply part of the human experience. As Christians, we will suffer in Christ and for Christ. Suffering in Christ will look different for every believer. Suffering might be facing cancer, living in poverty, or losing a loved one. Through Christ, we can endure affliction with the peace and joy that only he can provide. Christians can also face the prospect of, of suffering for Christ, as Paul did. Remember the words that, of Jesus Christ, who said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. But if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Don't let this, don't let this cause you fear. Because Jesus also said, Lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us and guides us. And, and by your Holy Spirit, we're able to live in a, in a Christ-honoring way. Amen. Natori, would you like to come lead us in the doxology?